So this evening, we continue in our memorable or notable verses series, as Pastor Cruz had mentioned, and the verse we will be approaching tonight is found at the end of the book of Genesis. Now, Genesis itself is filled with uh, memorable moments and very notable verses. We know the story of creation and the two very noteworthy verses found in the creation narrative, right? We have Genesis 1-1 in the, the first verse in the Bible, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And of course, we know Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Both two very noteworthy verses to preach upon as memorable verses, but not our focus tonight. And we know of the many characters in the book of Genesis and their stories. We have the narrative of Noah and God's judgment on the earth in the form of a flood. We have the call of Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. We know the stories of Abraham's son Isaac and his grandchildren Esau and Jacob. And of course, we have Jacob's children, his 12 sons that are born to him through his two wives, Rachel and Leah, and their two maidservants. And with the birth of these 12 boys, we see God's promise to Abraham really starting to take form. The promise that Abraham would be the father of a very great nation. For through these 12 boys, we have the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel. And what is fascinating is that all, although all 12 of these sons play a role in the nation of Israel as a whole, there is one special son who stands out. In fact, nearly one quarter of the entirety of the book of Genesis focuses upon this specific son. And that son, of course, is Joseph. And it is with Joseph and his story that we root ourselves for the remainder of the evening. I trust we all know well in the story of Joseph, both the sufferings that he endures because of his hatred of his brothers, and also the grace God shows him, though he is sold into a foreign land. But what is to be learned of Joseph and the incredible events surrounding his life as a whole, I think, is summarized in the memorable verse to which we will be looking at this evening. And that verse can be found in Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, it's the last chapter in the book, right before Joseph's death. So if you will, please take a look with me at Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You are welcome to turn there in your Bibles, or as we have been doing from week to week, you can take a look at the screen, as all of the Scripture will be on there as well. So we have Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, which reads this way. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This verse here is Joseph's response to the difficult life circumstances that he endured. And as we will see, this is an incredibly fascinating response. Why? Because Joseph's view on life was through the lens of a good and a sovereign God. Life was more than a series of circumstances. It was a plan orchestrated by the gracious hand of a good God. That's what Joseph believed. And that leads us to our theme for this evening, which is seeing God's good hand in the midst of man's wrongful intent. Seeing God's good hand in the midst of man's wrongful intent. And once again, our key verse is Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. But before we dissect this verse, I think it is important to take the time to analyze the events leading up to this response. What has happened prior to this statement that warrants Joseph responding in this manner? 
Well, first and foremost, let me lay the groundwork of the Joseph story. And once again, I trust we know the narrative well, but I just want to mention the highlights of Joseph's life for the sake of our message, all right, to set the stage. So to begin, we know that Joseph, the second youngest of the 12 sons of Jacob, was the most loved by his father. And as a result, Joseph's brothers contrastingly hated Joseph. And they hated him so much that they sold Joseph into the hand of the Ishmaelites. As a result, Joseph is taken and sold in the land of Egypt to an officer of Pharaoh named Potiphar. And though Joseph is righteous with his actions and his faithful service to Potiphar, through the unrighteous lie of Potiphar's wife, we see that Joseph is condemned and thrown into the king's prison. However, through the Lord's steadfast love, Joseph gains favor in the sight of the prison guard and becomes in charge of all the prisoners. While in prison, we see that, Joseph, uh, that Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker are thrown in jail during Joseph's stay. And through a series of events, Joseph's goodwill shown to Pharaoh's cupbearer is forgotten, and he remains in prison for two more years. Joseph is eventually remembered and drawn into the king's presence, or Pharaoh's presence, for the purpose of interpreting two dreams. Through Joseph, God reveals to Pharaoh the meaning of these dreams. Seven years of plenty will be throughout all the land of Egypt, followed by seven years of famine. Pharaoh finds favor with Joseph and makes him second in command over all the land of Egypt. Joseph is trusted with the job to tax the people in order to build up food storages to keep alive Egypt when the seven years of famine arrive. And because of Joseph's work and Egypt's built-up food storage, the peoples of the world come to Egypt to buy food and they survive the famine. And as we know, amongst the peoples that flock to Egypt for food, we have Joseph's brothers. And through a series of testings, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, and the brothers and the entire family of Joseph are kindly commanded by Pharaoh to migrate to the land of Egypt to be with Joseph and to live in luxury. So, the family of Jacob settles in the best of the land of Egypt, and the story ends in what is often known as a happy ending. But before the story completely ends, we get a bit of an aside, a bit of an interruption to the happy ending that is unfolding for the family of Jacob. This interruption is a, it's a rekindling, it's a remembrance of past events and a fear of the consequences that may ensue considering the present, the, the present situation. So that is where we're going to pick up with the Joseph story. We are going to slow down now and look at this interruption and see how Joseph responds to it. So where exactly do we pick up? Well, Jacob, the father of the twelve, has just died. Look with me at Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. All right, and this is five verses before our memorable verse. It says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So Jacob, at this point, had lived in Egypt with his unified or his united family, for 17 years. Chapters 48 and 49, the two chapters preceding this one, uh, are dedicated to the blessings that Jacob gives to both his 12 sons and to Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. But now Jacob has died. And to the brothers, that now means that they are exposed. Their shield of protection has been dissolved. It was clear that Joseph loved his father. In Genesis chapter 46, we get 
the account of Joseph and Jacob's reunion, and this is what verses 29 through 30 say. They say, then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, that's Jacob's, another name for Jacob, in Goshen. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph and his father were very, very, very close. After all, Joseph was Jacob's favorite. The brothers figure that as long as their father was alive, Joseph would never seek revenge on them. Revenge would break, apart, would break their father's heart. Joseph would never want to bring angst and hardship to his father as long as he remained alive. But now that Jacob was dead, that hedge of protection was gone. Moving along in the narrative, we see that Joseph's brothers fear the revenge that Joseph now has the power to inflict. Look with me at the second part of verse 15. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Our father is dead. We wronged Joseph many years ago. We have shown him misery, we have dealt with him unjustly, and now that Joseph is the head of the most prominent nation in the world, what is stopping him from taking revenge on us? To the brothers, the only thing holding Joseph back was his father, but dad is no longer here. All right, the brothers are exposed, they have no more protection. And you know, it's, it's a legit fear when you really step back and think about it. It is a scary thing to meet someone with incredible influence or power. Right? If you had to meet the President of the United States, no matter how confident you think you may be, there would be some level of nerves inside of you. And why is that? It's because of the power that the President holds. Because the title that he or she carries should bring some respect and honor. And it is nerve-wracking to approach someone with that standing. How much more frightening is it when you stand before that powerful person and you have done them wrong. That would be a scary thing. And that's what Joseph's brothers were facing. That is the fear that initiated the actions that follow. So what do the brothers do? What are their actions that result from this fear? Well, we see that the brothers try to use the protection of their father to its fullest extent. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. It reads this way. So they, that is the brothers, sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. So the brothers believe that if Joseph hears that their father commissioned forgiveness, then Joseph would surely obey. Right? If Joseph hears that his father wanted forgiveness to be shown to his brothers, then surely Joseph would honor his father's wishes. That was the brother's thought process. Although dad is dead, we can still use dad as our shield from any harm. Now, commentators, they really like to discuss whether this command of Jacob is true or not. Did jo Jacob really say this? Well, the scriptures don't tell us point blank, but I think the context of the story suggests that this is a fake command. Jacob probably did not say this. There is no account of Jacob commanding his sons to beg forgiveness. We just don't see that anywhere in the scriptures. But rather, this seems to be a deceitful ploy to save their own hides, to save their own lives. Notice how they present their request to Joseph. 
All right, there's two significant words in here. It says, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And then we have Joseph weeping there at the end. The request here is contingent upon their dead father. The emphasis here is Jacob. Father is used twice in this plea. The brothers are trying to tug at Joseph's emotions to keep themselves alive. But in the final phrase of this verse, verse 17, we see Joseph's true intentions. Joseph had no desire to seek retaliation. Right? At the end it says, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Joseph weeps at his brother's assumption. They figure he wants retaliation, but Joseph desires none. It brings Joseph to tears that his brothers would think such revenge was on his mind. But the brothers do not stop with a simple message. They also come before Joseph, presenting themselves as slaves to Joseph's will. Look with me at verse 18. Verse 18 says, His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Behold, we are your servants. Isn't that ironic, right? The brothers had sold Joseph into slavery to be a servant to the Egyptians or to the Ishmaelites at the time. Now they, that being the brothers, they are the ones bowing before Joseph, pleading for forgiveness and offering themselves as servants. You know, we didn't touch upon this in the beginning of our lesson, but do you, do you remember the, the dream, the two dreams that Joseph had long ago when he was a boy? The ones he told to his family. Let me just read the account of the first dream to you now. It's found in Genesis chapter 37. It says, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. That is what is happening right now in the context of the story. The brothers are bowing down before Joseph, fulfilling what this dream foretold. Now, this this isn't the first time Joseph's brothers are bowing down before him, but it is the first time Joseph's brothers are bowing down before him fully knowing to whom they are prostrating themselves. Right? You see, the first time they presented themselves to Joseph, the brothers did not yet recognize that it was Joseph who was standing before them. They just thought he was an Egyptian ruler. However, what is unique is that the brothers are now willingly bowing before their brother, knowing full well that he reigns over them and that he has the power to deal with them in any way that he sees fit. Joseph is in a very, very unique spot. The fulfillment of the dream that he had as a boy is surely again being brought to his memory. But as the the story continues, we see that Joseph does not exploit his power. Why? Because Joseph knows that God is the one who avenges. God is the one who justly rules and governs. Look with me at verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? 
We could certainly take the remainder of our time this evening to look at this verse, as it too is considered a memorable verse. For what Joseph is saying here in the context of the story is incredibly, incredibly unique. Remember, Joseph has more power than anyone in Egypt except Pharaoh. And not only that, but Egypt itself is one of the most powerful nations in the world at the moment. Why? Because a couple of years ago, Egypt was the only nation in the world with food. They were the only nation in the world who had resources. So not only is Joseph powerful in the country of Egypt, Joseph is powerful from a global perspective. Joseph had extreme power. Joseph had extreme prominence. If anyone had the authority and right to execute judgment in the land, it was considered Joseph. But what is Joseph's response? Right, he says, am I in the place of God? Yes, I may have power. Yes, I could punish you right now for the injustices that you caused on me. But Joseph saw the bigger picture. He knew who was above him. He knew who the ultimate judge and ruler of the world was. And Joseph essentially says, far be it from me to act as the ultimate judge and punisher of wrong. Rather, I must humble myself before God's authority and not interfere with his intent on my life. I think Benson's commentary summarizes the thoughts of Joseph very well. All right, and this is what it says. I quote, Dare I usurp the prerogative of God, to whom it belongs to take vengeance? Or can I do what I please with you without God's leave? Fear him rather than me, and upon your experience of his wonderful care of and kindness to you, be persuaded he will still befriend you, and therefore I will. God is the judge. God is the one who avenges, not us. But on the contrary, what are we called to do? Well, Paul tells us in the letter to the Romans, in chapter 12, look with me at verse 19 and 20. It says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, I will repay says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Vengeance, revenge, is the Lord's. Leave that to our just and holy creator. Our responsibility is to repay evil with good. Not to take revenge, not to seek retribution, not to even to seek out the, the establishment of fairness, but to the contrary, what is to be done? All right, what is to be done? We are to repay evil with good. And Joseph lived that truth. He treated his brothers with forgiveness and goodness. He loved them and took care of them in the land of Egypt in spite of the wrong that they did to him. So that leads me to our first point of application this evening. And while verse 19 is not the memorable verse to which we are looking this evening, it sets the stage and context for verse 20. So I think it is very appropriate to take a moment and really see how Joseph's understanding of his authority compared to God's authority applies to us. So I ask you the question, who is responsible for righting wrongs? When someone treats you unfairly, when someone humiliates you, when someone seeks to ruin your reputation, what is your response? 
I think for many of us, we want the answer to be revenge, to treat evil with evil. After all, isn't that what the person deserves? Isn't that what is fair? It's only fair to treat others the way that you have been treated. But what do the scriptures say? The scriptures say to not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, we live in a society where fairness is praised, right? Where revenge is honored. Every unjust action that is done to us needs to be resolved, and the person that carried out that action must pay. But what is Joseph's response to the unfairness that he experienced? He says, am I in the place of God? Who am I to right the wrongs done to me? I, I am not the ultimate judge, and that is God. May we be quick to forgive, and may we be quick to pour out goodness over our enemies, knowing that we must bow to the will of God. Moving along, we finally approach our memorable verse for this evening, and this is where I would like to spend the remainder of our time together. Here, we get Joseph's outlook on life. Here, we get Joseph's answer to the question, why has everything happened to me the way that it has? And what we're going to see is that Joseph knew life as more than a series of circumstances. And for him specifically, his life could be classified as a series of unjust and miserable circumstances. But Joseph saw beyond that. He saw way beyond that. Joseph understood that life is a plan orchestrated by the gracious hand of a good God. Look with me at verse 20. As for you, that being the brothers... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This verse begins with Joseph's recognition of his brother's intent to inflict misery upon him. Right? It begins with, as for you, you meant evil against me. In James uh, Boyce's commentary, uh, Boyce says this, and I think it's, it's very, very true. He says, few persons in history have suffered as intensely and as unjustly as Joseph. Joseph went through tremendous hardship, and it was not misery that he inflicted upon himself, but it was misery inflicted by others. And where did it all begin? Well, it began all the way back in Genesis chapter 37 with his brothers. And I'm going to read the passage for us now, and you can follow along if you would like. Beginning at verse 18. They, that being Joseph's brothers, saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he he may rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe and the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. 
I think we know this, this portion of Scripture very well. The brothers' intentions were evil, for evil were very, very clear. Initially, they wanted to kill Joseph, but by the hands of Reuben and Judah, through the grace of God, the initial intent for death was not carried out. Rather, Joseph was sold into the land of Egypt, a punishment that was administered for what reason? What was the reason here? Because of jealousy. The brothers were jealous of Joseph's favoritism and the dreams that he had. Certainly, that is unjust. You don't sell someone into slavery just because you envy them, no matter what reasons you have for that envy. Joseph, a young man being ushered into a new life in a world that he did not know, was certainly maliciously intended and unjustly carried out. But the wrongdoing does not stop there. Because of his brother's initial action, Joseph experiences further hardship. We first see it with Potiphar's wife. And I believe we know that story well too, right? Joseph is sold in the land of Egypt to a man named Potiphar. And God blessed the work of Jacob so that he, the work of Joseph, so that he gains favor in the sight of Potiphar and is put in charge of everything in Potiphar's house. However, Joseph's righteous actions in dealing with Potiphar's wife are repaid with evil. Look with me at Genesis 39, beginning at verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was, in, was there in the house, she called him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household and said to him, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came, in to, he came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought up among us came in to, to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. So as we know, Joseph is wrongly accused. Though he acted in a righteous manner, Potiphar's wife deceitfully accuses Joseph and he is placed in prison. No more is Joseph among the Egyptian household. No more is he honored among the Egyptian household. But rather, his reputation and status is all the more diminished. That is misery number two. And then finally, we have the third form of wrong and misery that Joseph encounters. When in prison, both Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker are thrown into custody. And while in custody, they both have dreams. And Joseph, by the working of God, is able to interpret these dreams. The dream of the baker is unfavorable, the interpretation being that in three days' time the baker will be killed. 
However, the dream of the cupbearer is favorable, the interpretation being that in three days' time, the cupbearer will be restored to his position before Pharaoh. However, Joseph makes a simple request of the cupbearer. Listen to Genesis 40, verses 14 through 15. This is Joseph speaking. He says, Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. As we know, Joseph's goodwill shown to this cupbearer is forgotten. In verse 23, we get this statement. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So Joseph remains two more years in custody before he is finally brought before Pharaoh. Joseph endures misery number three. And one could contribute all of the misery that Joseph encounters to his brothers. It was because his brothers sold him in the first place that all of this took place. But that is not how Joseph saw it. Joseph saw God's good hand overshadowing the evil intentions of his brothers. Look with me at the next part of verse 20. It says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good. Joseph understood the good hand of God at work in his life. Yes, the situations were miserable. Yes, he was dealt with unfairly, but that didn't stop Joseph from seeing God's good hand in directing his life. You know, at every point when Joseph went through a hardship, we looked at those three hardships, at every point, God was with him and was blessing him. Joseph didn't miss that, and we shouldn't miss that either. Take note to the three circumstances of misery that David encounters. We first looked at how his brothers unjustly sold him into the hands of the Ishmaelites. Well, Joseph is taken into Egypt and sold to Potiphar. Notice God's goodness in establishing favor between Joseph and Potiphar. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord Bless the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Though Joseph was in the midst of difficulty, though Joseph was sold because of evil intent, though Joseph was in the land he did not know, though the circumstances around him were certainly what he did not prefer, God blessed the work of his hands. God established him to a place of prominence within the Egyptian household. Joseph was faithful, though the circumstances around him encouraged unfaithfulness. And we know that God's goodness does not stop there. The second misery that Joseph endured was the accusation of Potiphar's wife. And as a result, Joseph is thrown into prison. But even in prison, we know that God was good. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read those couple of verses, but what we see here is that the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, for God had made favor between Joseph and the prison guard. So though Joseph loses his favor amongst Potiphar and his household, 
God is still good. God establishes favor between Joseph and the jailer. And then finally, we looked at the cupbearer and his forgetfulness of Joseph, though Joseph showed him kindness. Yet even in this, God's plan was at work. Once again, I'm not going to read this verse, but we know that through the interpretation of these dreams, we know that Pharaoh blesses, he honors, he brings to power Joseph so that Joseph is second in command in the entire land of Egypt. So don't miss God's goodness in the midst of man's malicious intent. Joseph's brothers desired for Joseph to be killed, but God was gracious to Joseph. God was with Joseph in every step. Though the world be against Joseph, God was faithful to Joseph. Though the world turn against Joseph, God was with him. And Joseph knew this. Joseph knew that God was good and that though the circumstances around him suggested otherwise, Joseph was to remain faithful. Joseph served a good and a sovereign God. But what I find the most interesting, the most striking in this memorable verse is perhaps what is often skipped when this verse is quoted. We always hear this verse being quoted, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. But the verse doesn't stop there, right? For there is a final phrase, a final phrase that perhaps is often forgotten. But I believe this phrase shows the depth and the remarkability of Joseph's understanding of a good and sovereign God. For in this phrase, we see the reason why Joseph considers God's plan to be good. What was the good reason for which Joseph was sold into the land of Egypt long ago? How did Joseph interpret the goodness of God in his life? And this is what Joseph says. He says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God intended for Joseph to be the deliverer of the world from famine. That is how Joseph saw God's goodness. Yes, we see how God was with Joseph every step on the way. Yes, we see that Joseph was risen to prominence in order that God's plan would be carried out. But Joseph saw beyond himself. Right? Joseph is not self-reflective in this verse in any way. He does not say, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to establish me as ruler over Egypt. That's not what he says. Joseph understood that God's goodness reached beyond his personal welfare. The goodness of God does not mean that we will all be rich and have significant power. Yes, God was with Joseph. Yes, God established Joseph's position in Egypt, and he probably was a rich, and we know he was a very powerful individual. But Joseph was able to look back and see that it wasn't about his welfare. God used Joseph to save the world. Look with me at Genesis 41, verses, verses 56 through 57. That should say 56 through 57. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Joseph was able to see God's goodness beyond his own welfare. God meant it for good in order to save the world. So as we close, that leads us to our very first point of application. And the first point of application is this. God's goodness in our lives is not always characterized by our personal condition. In other words, do not equate 
the goodness of God with personal welfare. Joseph understood that God's goodness did not mean that life would always be full of riches and honor among, among, from, a, from an earthly perspective. Sinful mankind dealt with Joseph unjustly, yet in that misery, Joseph still knew that God was a good God. My question is simply, do we believe that? When we are suffering at the hands of man, do we still look at God as good? Do we trust that he is rolling behind the hard circumstances that we face? When life isn't so good, are we able to say that all is good because God is good? I think if we want to our, our true answer to that question, we need to consider how we would respond when all we consider good in our lives is taken away. What is our response then when our health is taken away, when our riches are taken away, even when our family is taken away? Are we still able to say at that moment that God is good and he is in control? You see, the goodness of God is not always equated with our personal condition. Joseph believed that. Joseph understood that. Do we believe that as well? Do we believe that just because life isn't full of sunshine, God is working all things out for good? Do we believe that God's goodness, though we may not see the bigger picture, will prevail? I pray that we can say God is good in every single circumstance. My second point of application is this. Though all is against you, our good God is for you. You know, we live in a, a broken world, and we know that. All right? Everything in culture, it's tugging us against what the Scriptures say. And because of that, if we are faithful to God, we live in a countercultural way. And living counterculturally will spring up opposition, injustices, maliciously intended actions, persecution will all arise as a result. But what does Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 say? It says this. Listen carefully. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Though we be persecuted, though we face even the miseries Joseph faced, God is still good. And why? Because as believers, as the persecuted ones, we stand in favor with God. Though the world be against us, God is still watching over us. His hand is still in control. And even if we suffer so much as to give our lives for God, God's goodness still prevails. Why? For we have a great reward in heaven. Let us be faithful. Let us trust our God in the midst of of this, sinful world, of this sinful world. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. All things fall into God's plan. And if we serve a good God, we know his plan for, that we know that his plan then is for his good and for his glory. Let us be faithful. Then my final point of application is this. God's goodness extends to the world. God's goodness extends to the world. The grace that God shows before judgment is truly marvelous, right? It's truly amazing the goodness and grace God shows to the nation of Egypt, right? Uh, right after this portion of Scripture, we get the book of Exodus. That's what follows directly after. Joseph dies, and then we begin the book of Exodus. And we know of all the judgment that is executed upon Egypt. 
But do we ever stop to consider the grace God pours out upon this foreign people? All right, a, gru- a group of people that, let me remind you, is not his chosen people. 430 years before the Exodus, God was at work in Egypt through Joseph. Through Joseph, Egypt was blessed with the grace and goodness of God. And Pharaoh knew that. Joseph was very clear about the God to which he was faithful. God had surely made himself known in Egypt. And even when we approach the time of Moses and the Exodus, God gives Pharaoh multiple opportunities to let the people of Israel go. Yet Pharaoh never never responds in obedience. And as a result, judgment is executed. You know, we hear about the plagues. We know the stories surrounding the judgment. It is in all the Bible curriculum. But what about the grace of God shown to this foreign nation, right? Do we ever consider that? I believe the grace is often overlooked. God is extremely good and gracious to these foreign people. So let us not limit the reaches of God's goodness upon his fallen creation. God's goodness extends to the world. God's goodness impacts many people. And you know, what a, it, a blessing it is when God uses us to show his grace to a lost world. Right? God used Joseph mightily in a foreign land. We as believers face a foreign land every day. May we pray that God will use us to spread the goodness and grace of his in a broken world. What a God we serve. What grace God has that he is pleased to pour out among his creation. May we ever praise him. For though we as a broken people act for evil intent, God is good. And God's goodness will prevail. And it will prevail mightily. Let's close in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your goodness in our lives. Even when situations do not seem good, you are good, and your plan is always working out for good. I pray that we will uh, spread your goodness to the world, that uh, the grace and goodness of yourself will be uh, manifested in ourselves, and that through us we can be a light in the world, and that people can see that, and that they can respond to that. Pray as we face hardship, as we face calamity, that we can say that all our life you have been faithful to us and you have been good to us. I pray that that will be our prayer. I pray that will be our response to everything that, uh, that we face in life. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Thank you, and we are dismissed.